0: The History Channel Original Podcast.
1: History This Week. About July 15th, 1799. I'm Sally Helm. In the town of Rashid on the Nile Delta, French soldiers and Egyptian laborers are rebuilding an old, falling-down fort. Napoleon has invaded Egypt as part of his grand empire-building scheme, and now he wants to use this fort for his own military purposes. The stones that make up the fort have a long history. Thousands of years ago, some of them were built into a temple. Then that temple was demolished, and the stones were reused in other buildings, maybe another temple or a house or a wall— Until more recently, in the 1400s, some of the rubble was carted here to Rashid to help build a fort for an Islamic ruler. Now that fort is falling down and the French are trying to shore it up. The men are digging trenches for a new foundation and clearing away rubble from the old fort when one of them spots something interesting. We'll never know exactly who saw it first. We also don't know the exact date this happened. But someone, sometime, spots a jagged black rock covered in mysterious markings. One side of the stone has been polished, and it's inscribed with what looks like three different languages. Someone brings it over to the French commanding officer, a young man named Pierre-Francois Bouchard. Bouchard was also a scientist. He takes a look at this stone to see what he can make of it. And he quickly realizes that he's holding something very important in his hands. The French call the town of Rashid Rosette. And this stone, the Rosetta Stone, will become the key to deciphering a language that had been lost for thousands of years. Today, the race to unlock the secrets of hieroglyphs. How did two scholars manage to decode a language that no one in the world spoke? And when modern people could finally read the messages left by a long-dead civilization, what were we able to learn?
2: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze,
1: relax, and think about If you'd been walking around Egypt in 1799, you would have seen all around you statues and temples and monuments.
0: Every surface covered with these mysterious drawings.
1: That's the journalist Edward Dolnick. He wrote a book about the Rosetta Stone that's coming out this fall.
0: Egypt wasn't a closed book like a lot of mysteries. It was an open book. Here's the pictures, here's the writing, but it was an open book that nobody could read.
1: These symbols were called Hieroglyphs, And while they could be seen all over the place, no one knew what they meant. Even in the ancient world, only highly educated people could read and write in hieroglyphs. And over the centuries, the knowledge had been completely lost. Scholars had tried to figure it out.
0: But only in the most frustrating, pound-your-head-against-the-wall kind of way. They were like uh, an illiterate person who's looking at at someone's immense stamp collection. You might arrange the stamps. Here's red ones, here's blue ones, here's ones that have an animal in them.
1: So they could sort the hieroglyphs. This one looks like a lion. This one looks like a man kneeling down. But that doesn't get you very far in deciphering a message— And during all those years of head-pounding, Europeans in particular had gotten a pretty romantic view of what it was that hieroglyphs were hiding.
0: They thought that they would contain mystical insights, Mm -hmm. scientific and and cosmic truths. They expected to find the equivalent of, of E equals MC squared. They didn't think that they would say ordinary things about, uh, could you meet me for a drink after work?
1: (laughs) Many Europeans at the time exoticized ancient Egypt. They saw it as this mythical place where the river flowed south to north, and there was gold as far as the eye could see. That's part of what drove Napoleon to try and conquer it. He wasn't the first Egypt boasted sphinxes and pyramids, and it had dominated the world for centuries. So now...
0: Egypt, even though it has fallen on hard times, is still this this gleaming jewel in the minds of of conquerors. Uh, Whoever can get it will have a trophy that no one else can match.
1: So Napoleon did what he did and decided to go conquering. The British, meanwhile, wanted nothing more than to stop him.
0: This is the 1800s version of of the United States versus the Soviet Union. It's uh, fierce hatred and fear on on the part of uh, England and France for one another. And they've taken their battles crisscrossing across the world.
1: Plundering and destroying as they went, claiming countries and riches as their own. For the Egyptians,
0: the Egyptians are stuck in that terrible position of being a battleground for someone else's territorial ambitions.
1: And when someone spots a jagged black stone in a half-ruined fort in Rosetta, that stone becomes one more thing for these world powers to fight over. Neither France nor England considers that the stone might in fact belong to the Egyptians— And when the British defeat the French in Egypt shortly after the stone is found, they say...
0: That means uh, what we want, we take, and some of the things we want are these things you've found. We've heard about this stone. Thank you very much. We'll take that from you.
1: The French don't want to let their rivals push them around that way. At one point, they threaten to destroy the stone rather than hand it over. But the British eventually prevail. The Rosetta Stone is painted with a new line of text captured in Egypt by the British Army in 1801.
0: In this colonial era, that was considered fair play.
1: That brief line in English gets added to what is already a pretty busy rock. To look at the stone for a moment, like, tell me what it looks like. What do you see when you look at the Rosetta Stone?
0: It's a big black stone. It's broken. Um, it, It looks like a giant headstone in a cemetery, say. It's about four feet tall, something like that, a couple of feet wide, uh, dark, dark black. It's got three kinds of, of writing, or maybe they're just decoration, on it.
1: Writing, decoration, how's an 18th century scholar to know? Though the top section was definitely written in those hieroglyphs that you could still find all over Egypt.
0: And hieroglyphs look like code writing. There are birds, there are snakes, there are uh, eyes, and there's also more abstract things. There's zigzags and squares and circles.
1: There are 14 lines of hieroglyphs. It looks like they've been cut short because the stone is broken on both sides. And then there's about twice as much writing in
0: another script. It squiggles and curlicues. It looks kind of like shorthand writing.
1: And then the bottom third of the stone is written in Greek. Which is what has everyone so excited. They can read Greek. And when they do...
0: What they're hoping it it says is, here are three kinds of writing. They're different. The one on the top is hieroglyphs, the one you want to know all about. And here's how it works. (laughs) But it doesn't say that.
1: Instead, it's essentially a love letter to a pharaoh named Ptolemy.
0: And did I tell you how mighty he is? And he's even mightier than that. He's, he's big and he's strong and he's fearsome. And Not list- what the scholars were hoping. List-
1: but then...
0: Almost at the very end, it says in Greek, and I as Pharaoh am so great that everybody should know about my greatness, and therefore we're going to describe it in three different ways. All on this same stone. So that everyone will know exactly how mighty and formidable the Pharaoh is.
1: Three forms of the same message, which means it might be possible to use the Greek as a kind of legend to decode the hieroglyphs.
0: So now they're all excited. Now now we'll get to work.
1: The British have possession of the stone now, but they want it deciphered, and so they make copies to distribute to scholars throughout Europe. The first Frenchman to tackle the puzzle is a man named Sylvester de Sassi.
0: A great French linguist, a renowned scholar, an expert on ancient languages.
1: Scholars in these early days thought that decoding the stone would take about two weeks. Just line up the hieroglyphs with the corresponding Greek words and boom, language deciphered. No problem for a great linguist like de Sassi. But when he sits down to the task, he encounters some problems. First, it turns out the Greek text isn't actually a direct translation of the other two.
0: It's much more like three people's summaries of some movie, the same movie. So somebody's gonna say, oh, it's the it's this great thriller and you wouldn't believe it and, and the cop turns out to be a crook. And somebody else will say, it's the new movie starring Meryl Streep. and So, so it's the same deal, but, but not close enough that, that it's easy to go from one to the other.
1: Without being able to just match up the languages, scholars are really stumbling around in the dark.
0: So you've got these symbols. You don't know which way even to read them. Do you go up and down or right to left or left to right?
1: They can identify individual marks on the stone—
0: but they don't know, are are these two marks next to each other? Are they part of the same thing? Do they correspond to sounds? What sounds? And what's even worse is that Egyptian was a dead language, so no one spoke it. So even if you could figure out what snake, bird, squiggle meant, that it meant the sounds, nefert, say, (laughs) you wouldn't know that those sounds meant anything. So to read the hieroglyphs, would be like trying to read Chinese, not only if you didn't speak Chinese, but if no one in the world spoke it, or had spoken it for the past 2,000 years.
1: They don't even know if hieroglyphs are an alphabet, where each symbol is one letter, or if the symbols stand for whole words. And to make matters just a little more impossible, there are no spaces or punctuation in the hieroglyphs. No way to know where each word started and stopped. The great linguist de Sossi is
0: stumped. He can't get very far, and so he gives up.
1: Turns out this was not a two-week task.
0: It does take 20 years.
1: In those 20 years, many scholars try and fail. Until the project falls into the lap of a young Englishman named Thomas Young. He is by trade a scientist— the secretary of a learned society called the Royal Society of London. Today, he's remembered for discoveries like the wave theory of
0: light. But what was remarkable about Jung was he was interested in everything under the sun.
1: Consequently, Jung also figured out how the human eye focuses on objects at different distances. He created a rule of thumb for determining what medication dosage a child needs. He found a new way to tune musical instruments. Young hadn't grown up wealthy, but a rich uncle left him an inheritance when he was in college, and he was set for life. He bought himself a country house, and he liked to spend summers there bending his brain on one project or another. And in 1814, he decides to turn his attention to the Rosetta Stone.
0: He is not especially interested in hieroglyphs or Egypt, but somebody tells him, you know, here's a mystery that no one's been able to crack. And he says, well, I haven't tried it yet. Um, <laughs> here's a problem too difficult for ordinary run of mortals. Just my kind of thing.
1: Young gathers up some copies of the stone's engravings, plus some essays by those ordinary mortals like de Sossi who have tried to decode it and failed. And then he takes a scientific approach.
0: That's his thing. Pattern recognition in, in endless patience and brain power.
1: He's counting and categorizing and getting nowhere. Which is an unusual feeling for Thomas Young. He is used to success. Finally, he writes to DeSasi, anxious to know if he's made any progress. DeSasi says, nope.
0: But oh, one tiny thing. Maybe you'll care about this. There's another fellow over here in France named Champollion. He's onto this case, too, and he says he's done great things. And now Young says, whoa, that's not good.
1: Young is a competitive guy, and he has just heard the name of his chief competitor, a Frenchman almost 20 years his junior named Jean-Francois Champollion. In his youth, Champollion, like Young, had been a child prodigy with a knack for languages. But where Young was cool and aloof, Champollion…
0: Throughout his life, he's this fiery, emotional, romantic, brilliant, moody person.
1: He'd grown up in a rural French town that had been battered by the Revolution. As a kid, he'd seen people hauled off to the guillotine. His greatest ally through it all was his older brother who had encouraged Champollion's study of languages.
0: Hebrew and Arabic and Persian and and half a dozen more. Uh, He masters them all. He's a dazzling student.
1: By age 16, he's immersed himself in the study of a nearly dead language called Coptic. Coptic had been spoken in Egypt over a thousand years before. It came after the ancient Egyptian language written in hieroglyphs and before most people in Egypt started speaking Arabic. He picks Coptic because unlike Young, who could care less about Egypt, Champollion,
0: he wants to know what's going on in Egypt. He's consumed with the ancient world. And so as a teenager, he throws himself into, into the study of Coptic. He, he writes up a, his diary in Coptic. He says he dreams in Coptic. He, he goes to to a Coptic church near him in France just to listen to the sounds of this ancient language flow over him.
1: Jampolian also harbors a dream that Coptic might be the key to the real Holy Grail, the hieroglyphs. He has a theory that Coptic might be descended from that ancient Egyptian language and still bear traces of the original. The way French was a descendant of Latin, and you could still hear Latin in some of the words. He figures, well, these languages were spoken in the same place, even by some of the same people. But a lot of scholars thought he was barking up the wrong tree. That Coptic, which was mostly written using the Greek alphabet, came from Greek, not ancient Egyptian. But Champollion is convinced and determined. And he decides to turn to the greatest puzzle of them all, the Rosetta Stone. Champollion is working from a copy of the stone. And in November of 1814, he decides he could use a better version. So he writes a letter to the Royal Society of London.
0: I'm working away at deciphering the Rosetta Stone, but I need a better copy of it. Could you send me one?
1: And who should happen to be the current secretary of that society but Thomas Young?
0: Well, Young's not in charge of sending out copies. Champollion has mailed his letter to the wrong place. So now it seems that everywhere Young turns, he's hearing that there's this rival, this fellow Champollion, who's after the same deciphering mystery that he's after.
1: Luckily for Young, and unluckily for Champollion, the Frenchman is about to be forced into exile. Champollion's beloved older brother had worked closely with Napoleon, and when Napoleon's fortunes begin to change, the brothers have to flee to the French countryside. Champollion's Rosetta Stone research remains locked in a cabinet for over a year until he can get someone to ship it to him. Meanwhile, Young keeps working. He's focusing now on the symbols on the stone that are inside of these ovals. They're called cartouches. There are six of them each with nearly identical symbols inside, scattered throughout the hieroglyphic writing. And Jung has a
0: hunch. These things stand out. And what's the most important thing in the hieroglyphs, he says, it must be the the pharaoh's name, it's Ptolemy. Mm -hmm. If you were going to outline uh, anything for special notice, it would be the name of the ruler.
1: Jung knows how the name Ptolemy sounds because it's also written in the Greek. And so he figures that these symbols strung together make the sounds in that name. Actually, the Greek version, Ptolemaeus. It's just a guess, but it's a good one.
0: Not only is, is he right, but he's read them. This is the first word in, in ancient Egyptian that anyone has read in, in about 1,500 years. So he, he has kind of put his ear to this Rosetta Stone, and he's heard a name. From, from thousands of years before.
1: Young now has these symbols that he believes stand for the sounds Ptolemaeus. So he starts trying to match them up. What if the first hieroglyph makes the sound p, and the second is t, and the third is all?
0: And if they don't quite match, I'll, I'll fiddle a little bit. He's essentially, in a very highbrow way, making an educated guess at an answer in a crossword puzzle. Yeah. I think this fits, he said. He'll put it in.
1: He's building an alphabet. A lion means L. A semicircle is T. A little cane like symbol, S. And then he reaches out to other scholars, asking to see different hieroglyphic inscriptions to see if he can test this mini alphabet on other rulers' names. Only the names, though, not other regular
0: words. He's, he's made a, uh, a mistake here. What he's decided is that these cartouches are special because rulers are special.
1: He's right, as it turns out. Cartouches do point to rulers. But Young thinks that his alphabet rules apply only inside the cartouche. He's hung up on the fact that Ptolemy is a foreign name. This is a pharaoh who ruled after the Greeks had conquered Egypt. And he knows that in Chinese script, the way to spell a foreign name is to find characters that sound roughly right and put them together. He thinks that's what's going on here, that hieroglyphs are used as sounds only inside these cartouches and only to spell foreign names. And in this guess, the great Thomas Young is actually wrong. He's so close to unlocking the whole stone But Champollion
2: is going to get there first. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
1: Thomas Young has had a key insight. The hieroglyphs inside cartouches represent sounds. And when Champollion finally gets his own research out of that locked cabinet, he finds his way to a similar insight. Though he takes a different painstaking route, he tries to count the words and the hieroglyphs on the stone. And he realizes...
0: The count doesn't make any sense, it turns out, because if, if the hieroglyphs are words, you would expect there to be thousands and thousands and thousands of them.
1: And yet, the stone only had 166 different symbols. Ancient Egyptian had to have way more words than that. But if the symbols worked like letters, 166 was far too many. So Champollion sees the hieroglyphs must be working in some other way. So essentially, they're both trying to first figure out this big, big question of, is a hieroglyph like an emoji, where it means a whole concept, or is it like a letter, where it's a, a sound?
0: That, that's exactly right. And to jump ahead, one of the things that makes hieroglyphs so hard is that all those answers were true. Sometimes a hieroglyph would stand for a sound or a letter. Like A is for apple. But sometimes it was like an emoji a smiley face or something like that. And sometimes it was a, a message like, uh, like I heart New York, <laughs> where there would be the letter I, but then, then a heart right in the middle of the message. And so it makes it terribly difficult when you're trying to decipher things. You say, oh, well, a hieroglyph is a sound. But, but then if you were trying to figure out the sound of a heart, you know, that wouldn't work.
1: But Champollion is about to get a peek into this complicated system, all because of his teenage obsession with Coptic. It's September 14th, 1822. Champollion is in his early 30s now, still obsessed with the Rosetta Stone. But at this point, he, like Young, is looking at cartouches on other ancient inscriptions. And one morning, he's working in his brother's attic in Paris looking at a cartouche with three different symbols. The last one he knows corresponds to S. That came from the name Ptolemaeus. But the others are unknown. And he zeroes in on the first one. It's a circle, and it kind of looks like...
0: Or he guesses that it's a drawing of the sun. Hmm. And he knows the word sun from from Coptic is Ra. Um, Ra was the sun god, the mightiest of all gods,
1: it's kind of crazy because I've looked at it, it, it
0: kind of looks like a sun, but it just looks like a
1: circle. Like, that feels like a flash of brilliance that he has. Yes,
0: it, 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 it's, it's a, a flash of genius or a lucky guess or, or a uh, complete fluke.
1: But Champollion thinks, what if that little sun is pronounced Ra in ancient Egyptian, like it is in the Coptic? Then, in the cartouche, he has…
0: Ra something S. Ra s- uh, And that's as far as he gets. And he says, if only I could look at a list of pharaohs.
1: Luckily, he finds one. Ancient scholars had gone to Egypt and asked priests for the names of their past rulers.
0: So, Champollion looks at one of those lists, going down the list, scanning for, is there a name of a pharaoh that starts with Ra and ends with S. Ra, Ra, Ra. ra. And he finds… Ramses, there there was such a pharaoh.
1: Ramses had ruled Egypt long before the Greeks arrived. If these symbols spelled his name, that would mean Egyptians had been using hieroglyphs all along to spell all names, not just foreign ones like Jung had thought. And it meant that within the same name, some hieroglyphs could stand for symbols, like Ra, the sun, and others could stand for sounds, like that final S. And then, Champollion hears something else. Another echo of the Coptic. Tucked within the name Ramses, Champollion recognizes a Coptic word, misé. It means birth. So Champollion thinks...
0: He hasn't just found a name, Ramses, he's found a name with a meaning. It means something about the son of the sun or born of the sun or something.
1: An honorific like that makes sense for a pharaoh. It's like calling a British king Richard the Lionhearted. And if Champollion is right, then the last two symbols in Ramses, misé, also have a separate meaning, birth.
0: He's figured out how to read an ordinary word. Mm. And so how can he test that theory?
1: With the Rosetta Stone. So he goes back to the stone and he sees those two symbols, the M and the S sitting next to each other outside of a cartouche. If his hunch is right, he should also be able to find the word birth written in the Greek. So he's scanning the bottom of the stone.
0: And he's looking birth, birth, birth. There's nothing about it. I'm I'm the mightiest. I put up this temple. I put up that temple. And then at the end, it says, And the Pharaoh is so mighty that we must celebrate him. And what day should we celebrate him on? Well, what day could be more appropriate than on the very day of his birth? Oh my God. And so he's found it, and Champollion gathers up his notes, and he he runs out of his little attic office, and he clambers down the stairs, and he runs looking for his beloved brother who works a few blocks away, and he runs down the street and up the stairs of his brother's apartment, and he bursts into, into his brother's room, shoves open the door, and he says, I've got it, and then he falls on the floor in a faint.
1: This is a major, major breakthrough. And it offers Champollion a path for understanding many other words. He has to puzzle out the rules for when a hieroglyph is acting as a picture or a sound, but he can use his Coptic to help guide the way.
0: So Champollion, who was as far as could be from a second grader in intellectual uh, range and power, nonetheless is stuck at that same struggle of of learning to read, where you take yourself by surprise when you're just sounding out words. You you say, uh, the man uh, patted the d, the d, the the, the, the the dog. This
1: process also helped Champollion to a second discovery. He knew already that the ancient Egyptian language was written without vowels. So misé was just the M and the S, which meant some different words were written in the same way. It would be like if HT might mean either hat or hate. Champollion eventually noticed that some of those words have a hieroglyph tacked on at the end to indicate the meaning, like a little cat hieroglyph to mean the word you just read is cat, We actually have some parallels to this in English, like we capitalize White House to signal that we're talking about the president's home, not just any old White House. A written cue for the reader, offering information about a word's meaning. And since these were placed at the end of the word.
0: Now uh, he had another clue, he knew where words ended.
1: Which made it much easier for Champollion to actually read. And in 1828, his lifelong dream comes true. He's able to visit Egypt in person, to see all those surfaces covered in symbols.
0: And he's, he's reading. He's the only person in the world who could do this. All these inscriptions that, that are everywhere, this extraordinary moment, he's, he, he's looked on um, by others now almost as, as a sorcerer. He has this power that, that's unmatched.
1: The work of Champollion and Young brought to life a history that had been thoroughly documented, but impenetrable. Deciphering the ancient Egyptian language allowed scholars to discover lost rulers, including Hatshepsut, a female pharaoh whose legacy had been totally obscured. And they also found that hieroglyphs weren't all profound reflections on the meaning of life. They went way beyond that.
0: We've got love letters, we've got uh, tax receipts about uh, how the pyramids were built and how much it cost to build them and what uh, Egyptians thought happened to you after you died and what they were afraid of while they were alive and what they thought of their bosses and their wives and their boyfriends and their girlfriends and uh, their teachers. All this is written down um, and, and we can read it. So we have a window on this strange and distant, but in many ways, familiar culture.
1: Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Special thanks today to our guest Edward Dolnick, whose great book, The Writing of the Gods, will be out this October. Thanks also to Diane greco Josephowitz, who co-wrote a book called The Riddle of the Rosetta. This episode was produced by Julia Press. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Jonathan Seary, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. McKamey Lynn is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS.